Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Morning, City Walk Church. How are we doing? Whether you're watching or online or you're here in person, thankful that you're here. I know this is a big week for a lot of people over the past couple weeks, and I know some people uh, this week school is starting. I know it's starting in a kind of a different way than what we're used to, but, but school's getting started, and the fall is kind of almost about to creep around the corner pretty soon, and we'll start to have some cooler weather. Pumpkin spice lattes are back at Starbucks, for those of you that care, uh, which is... That's how I know when it's fall, when pumpkin spice lattes come to Starbucks, and then I know it's the holiday season when red cups come to Starbucks, and that's kind of how I, I tell. But, but before you know it, we will be scooting into the holidays. I mean, Walmart probably already has two or three aisles full of Christmas decorations uh, for you to purchase, and, and we'll be scooting into the holiday season, and then, and you probably won't be really sad to see 2020 go. But 2020 will be gone, and we'll be scooting into uh, 2021. And, and during the first part of the year, I don't know if you're a, a goal setter, uh, but usually when we get towards the end of one year and we start to move into the beginning of another year, I, I usually sit down and I'll set some goals for the, the next year. And one of the things that I set, one of the goals I set is I set a reading goal. Uh, I try to set a goal of how many books that I want to read uh, in this next year. And the reason I have to set a goal of books that I'll complete is because when I was in my 20s and 30s, I had a really kind of sick relationship with books. And here's what I mean. You're like, what in the world are you saying? That's kind of scary. Here's what, here's what my problem would be. And my wife, this got on her nerves. I would, be, I would buy, man, if there was a new book out, I was buying it. If there was a new leadership book out, if there was a new biography out, if there was a new, you know, book, a business book or something, a ministry that somebody, uh, you know, said, hey, you should read this book, I'd buy it. And then I would, I would buy it. But what I had an issue with is I never really appreciated the author's uh, kind of the foundations of their book and the why behind their book. And what I was looking for is, hey, I want to find the system or I want to find the chart. I want to find the list of things to do, to change. Like, I, I want to know the, the stuff probably in the very back of the book that just tells me what to do. But most of the books, they start by not telling you about the to-do part. They start by setting a foundation and, and kind of telling you the why behind the do's. And so what I had a bad, bad habit of is I would start a bunch of books and then I would never do much about I'd get a few chapters in and I'd get kind of bored because it wasn't telling me what to do. And I would set that book down because there was two new books that were out now and I wanted to grab those books. And so if you were to come to my house right now, in my, my closets, kind of half closed and half unfinished books from my 20s and 30s. So if you need a book, I probably have it if you want to read it. But, but the reason, and I already mentioned this, 
I, I was the type of person, and I'm guessing that you can relate with this because you know whether it's in business or faith or even in like our personal health, the why gives power to the what. And so when we understand the why about something, it gives power to the actual actions. And we understand this in a variety of different areas in our life. For instance, your desire to live longer and to maybe be there for your family long term is the reason that you maybe exercise or you eat healthy. You don't eat broccoli because you love it. Maybe you do, but most people aren't eating salads and broccoli and and leaving the, the stuff that tastes really good and not eating it because they just like it. Most people are eating certain things because there's a why behind it. Most people don't don't just in their in their heart wake up in the morning and say, Man, I cannot wait to get out on the pavement and get running. I I could barely sleep last night. I was so excited about exercising. But the the reason that we do that is because we know that, man, there's a why behind the what. I want to live long. I want to be healthy. I want to be there for my family later on in life. And so I'm going to eat a little more healthy. I'm going to discipline myself to exercise because there's a why. Maybe you're a student. You're a college student, you're a high school, middle school student, and for you, you have a desire to one day love your profession and one day provide for your family, and so because of that, you go to class. Because of that, you do your work. It's not because you don't have something that would be more fun to do, it's because there's a why behind the what, and because of that why, it drives you to do some things that maybe you would do other things if you didn't have the why. And without, and you know this, without the why, there's no power to the what. And, and this idea is something that Paul, the writer of Ephesians, understood well. Over the last few weeks, in fact, we're about 10 weeks in, next week's our last week in Ephesians, we have been walking through a letter that a guy by the name of Paul wrote, and he wrote it to a group of people that he loved dearly, and, and he wrote it from prison. And so while he was in prison, the people in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, were on his mind. And so he wrote this letter just like he did to some other people. He used his time in prison to write this letter. And he knew these people well, and he loved them deeply, and he desired to see their relationship with God and their relationship with each other flourish. He wanted that for them. And here's what Paul understood. He understood that... Intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with others. He he knew that intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with others. And because he so desired for these people that he loved, that he had spent time with, that their relationship with God would be healthy, he, he wrote to them. And for the first about a half of the book, he talked all about God and their relationship with God and the importance of it and all the things they had because they had a relationship with God. He talks all about that in the first part of the book because he understood that that's kind of the the why behind all of the what's in life, that the relationship with God. But then what he did is after he was done talking about the relationship with God and the importance of it, in the second half of the book, he starts to now talk about a lot of the what's, 
a lot of the practical things that were real practical to their life that if they didn't have the relationship with God, the what's wouldn't work out well, but because they had that foundation, now they would do better with all these other things. And so what he does, now he's almost done with his letter. He's closing up his letter. He's just got a little bit more to write. And what he does now is he begins to talk about relationships with people. And he gets real specific. And, and for us, whether you grew up in church or not, whether you're watching online or you're here in person, you got to understand that Paul was writing to real people that he knew he was writing to real people that probably got his letter and probably on a Saturday or Sunday night when they would have church sat down and read this. And Paul, in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, he, he lays the foundation to everything else he's about to say about relationships. He says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says that the word submit means to voluntarily place yourself under. And he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's about to go in and he's about to talk about specific relationships, but he wants to lay the foundation and he says, hey, out of reverence for Christ, every single one of us has to humble ourselves and place ourselves under people in different relationships, in different roles, in order for the body of Christ to work and the kingdom of God to expand. And he, he says, man, our, our example is Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus stepped out of heaven to come to earth, he, he placed himself under the will of his Father to the point where on the night that he was about to go and be crucified, he literally said to his Father, hey, not my will but yours. If I had to choose, man, I would probably choose a different way. What I'm about to go through is not going to be fun, but I'm placing myself under your will, not my will, but yours be done. And so Paul, he lays the foundation for every relationship in the body of Christ. And he says, submitting yourselves to one another, this idea of mutual submission. Humbling ourselves the way Jesus humbled himself for the purpose of unity and the purpose of expansion of the kingdom of God. And then what Paul does is he, he starts to talk about some specific relationships and how this works. And he says this in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body and in is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is a passage of scripture that has been jacked up over the years. It's been jacked up over the years. It's been taken out of context over the years. It's been taught wrong over the years. And it's been taught in, in some cases with an agenda to build a male-dominated society and church. And that's not what Paul was saying. Here's what Paul's saying. After he's just laid the foundation of, hey, submitting yourself to one another just as Jesus did, following his example out of reverence to him. And he starts with, with the wife. He says, I want you to submit yourself to your husband. And, and basically, here's what Paul's saying. He, he's, 
he's saying that God has given the husband the responsibility to be the leader of the family. And, and this idea of, of submission has nothing to do with inferiority or better than anybody. It's just roles that we play and, and the way that God laid it out so that in his mind it would work best for unity. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. God has given the responsibility of leading the family to the husband. And, and here's what's really important, and we need to go all the way back to the beginning into Genesis to really understand this, because this is where it's been kind of jacked up and taken out of context and given, there's been agendas put on this. In, in, in Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam, he looked at Adam, and, and the only time before sin entered the world, it was the only time that God said something is not good. After he created Adam, Adam was, was doing what God told him to do, and he looked at Adam by himself, and he says, you know what? It is not good for you to be alone. Like, boy, you, you, need, you need some help. And yet all the wives are like, I yes, I, I can agree with God. My guy needs some help. Without me, he'd be a wreck. And, and God says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And, and then this is what God says. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. And that word helper, it's really important that you understand what that word helper means. That word helper is not a demeaning term. The word helper in other parts of the scripture is a word that describes God. All throughout the scripture where it says God helps you and God is your helper, it's the same word used here to describe Eve. And God says, hey, it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone. I'm going to give you a helper to help you. And again, that, that word is a word to describe God, the word helper. See, submission does not mean inferiority. It simply means that the wife recognizes that her husband has been given the responsibility by God to lead his family. And that she, out of reverence for God, not always reverence for her husband, because you may have a story that says, man, my husband does not love God. My husband does not always do all the right things. And out of reverence for God, I still respect I still don't usurp. I, I still it, it respect him. That word respect is so important. See, I, I grew up in a, a family. I was the oldest of three boys. And when I turned 12 or 13 years old, uh, my dad, and, and my dad, if he was here today, he would tell you this. My dad started to make some really, really unwise decisions to the point where there was a season where he left our family where we were just a signature away from a divorce. And it was just, it was a season of a lot of selfishness and a lot of just not wisdom. And, and I, I remember this very clearly. In the midst of that time when my dad had not earned reverence or respect from anybody, and he would say that, my mom never talked bad about my dad in front of us boys. And I, I remember it stands out to me. It, I would watch my mom in tears and personally hurt deeply. And, and my dad, 
he, he didn't, wasn't earning respect. I mean, he wasn't deserving respect at that point. But, but she, out of reverence for God, continued to love and respect my dad. And that changed the game for our whole family. My dad came back. And now, 30-some years later, my dad's one of the most godly men that I know. And me and my two brothers... Are, have all given our lives to full-time ministry. And I point back to a mom that loved God so much in the midst of what was turning her world upside down. She continued to love and respect my dad. And it changed the game. And so that's what Paul says. He says, he says as we mutually submit, the, the role of a husband is to lead his family. And he won't always do that well. But out of reverence for God, a wife should still respect and love her husband. But then God goes on, or God, Paul goes on. And he talks a little bit to the wife, but then he talks a lot to the husband. And here's what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, husbands, love. The, that word love simply means this, seeking the highest good for another person. Husbands, seek the highest good for your wife. Love your wife. And, and then he says this, let me give you an example of the type of love you're supposed to have for your wife. You're supposed to love your wife in the same way that Jesus loved his church and gave himself up for the church. You're supposed to love your wife the same way Jesus selflessly loved his church, and literally gave everything he had for his church. Husbands, that's the way you're supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to give your life for her and your family. See, we have this society, unfortunately, that, that in, in some kind of sick ways sets up this standard where, where a guy... He, he, he goes to work and maybe he comes home and, and there's this expectation that, hey, when I get home, I've worked all day and, and somebody needs to bring me my drink and somebody needs to do this and somebody needs to do this. Almost like there's this expectation where you're supposed to kind of rule with an iron hand and everybody's supposed to serve you and that's what it's supposed to be about. And that is 100% against what Paul's saying. The husband should go to bed more tired than anybody in the house. If you're a dad, you should go to bed every single night dog-tired because you have the responsibility to love your wife and to give yourself the same way that Jesus gave himself for the church. And that doesn't mean that, man, I love it when my daughter says, hey, dad, you want a ginger ale? In my house, that's what I love to drink, ginger ale. So, that doesn't mean that you don't serve your dad, but there's not this expectation that everybody's here to serve me and make my life easier. No, the expectation for dad should be, you know what? Dad's here to serve everyone else and give himself and love his wife the way Jesus loved the church. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, we, we have this mutual submission. Again, not because your wife never makes a mistake, not because she never gets on your nerves. No, 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 no. Out of reverence for Christ, we love the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself. And, 
And Paul illustrates it another way in verse 28. He, he must have known, like, guys need a couple of illustrations to really understand this. I, and so he says, let me kind of explain it another way, guys. He says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Like we feed ourselves, we, we protect ourselves. Man, when the hair's looking raggedy, we go get a haircut. We, we, we take care of ourselves. We might even have a, a membership at the gym, and we're taking care of ourselves. And, and Paul says, the way you love yourself, the way you nourish and cherish, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of one body, a husband who follows Jesus should care for his wife with the same devotion that he naturally cares for himself. And that's what Paul's saying. And what he does in this, as he kind of closes the section about marriage and wife and husband's roles, he, he closes the section by going back to Genesis chapter 2 and by just again talking about the importance of marriage and talking about the importance of marriage from God's view. He says this, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, it's Genesis 2.24 that Paul, Paul quotes. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. That word hold fast literally means cement to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church this is so important that we understand. Whether you grew up in church, maybe you uh, have questions about faith, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time. When God looks at marriage, here's what he says. Marriage is a picture of my relationship with my church. That's what Paul's saying. The marriage relationship, as imperfect as it is, because both partners are imperfect, sinful people, that husband and the wife... The, the, the way they're together is a picture to the world of Jesus' love for his church. You're like, Paul, dude, where's the, where's the, the five steps to greater communication? Man, where, where's the 13 great date nights that will keep my marriage sizzling? Like, where's that advice? And, and here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? That, that, those probably aren't bad things, and maybe that'll help you for a few weeks. But it will change the game in your marriage when you get the fact that intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with others. A few years ago, it's about six years ago, Lori and I, we've been married now for about 23 years. And about six, between six, seven years ago, we went through a really, really tough time. And it was about 99.9% .9 my fault that we went through a tough time. And God graciously put a biblical counselor in our life that walked with us for several months and was just a friend and just, just walked with us. And, and when we sat down, we would sit down with him pretty much almost every week for a period of time. You know what we talked very little about? We talked very little about five steps to greater communication our 13 great date nights that'll help you have a great marriage. You know what we talked a lot about probably every single week? How to 
could we become more like Jesus? How could me as a husband, how could Lori as a wife look more like Jesus? And, and you, know, you know why we talked about that? Because that's what would change the game for our whole relationship. Because intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with others. And Paul understood that. And, and that's why he taught just so clearly. Again, he's talking to real people. He sees faces as he's writing this letter. He loves these people dearly. He desperately wants to see their relationship with God flourish and the relationship with others flourish. And he's writing this. But, and then he goes, kind of moves in and he talks about a couple other relationships that are important that, that most of us have had or are part of even now. He says in, in chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live in the land, long in the land. He says, children, obey. That has to do with your actions. And then he says, children, honor. That has to do with your attitudes. Obey and honor your parents in the Lord. He doesn't say, hey, when your parents are great or when your parents do things the right way. No, again, out of reverence for God. Because of your love for God, because of your intimacy with God, obey and honor your parents. And when you do that, there's a side benefit for you. When you obey your parents, it usually is a wise thing to do, and you'll actually be blessed in your life, and you'll live longer because you probably won't make as many dumb decisions. And so he says, obey and honor your parents again. Not because your dad's perfect. Not because your mom never yells or says something she shouldn't. But out of reverence for the Lord, because of God... Because of your intimacy with God, if you're obeying people just because it's the right thing to do, you probably won't obey them for long. You probably won't honor them for long. But if you're doing it, if there's a greater why, and if, it's, if that why is intimacy with God that's transforming you, even on your worst days, even when you're not treated properly, you will still obey God and honor and obey and then Paul, he closes up and he says this. He says, bond servants. And this word bond servants, in this, again, he's writing to real people. And where these people were in Ephesus, about a third of the people were bond servants. So about a third of the population was a bond servant. And the rest were, they, they called just masters. They were the bosses. So a third were bond servants and the rest were uh, in charge or managers or they, uh, masters. And, and in this setting, and, and if we had a lot longer time, and at some point we will, this idea of bond servants, it, it, it wasn't employee-boss relationships as we have it, and it wasn't slave the way we think of slavery. It was somewhere kind of in the middle. It had some of both, uh, and it probably leaned more towards the slave part. 
And here's what Paul wasn't doing. Paul wasn't condoning this servanthood. He wasn't condoning. He wasn't saying, oh, this is all right. No, what he was saying, because again, he's writing to real people that he loves dearly. And he's saying, hey, this is your reality. Let me walk you through how to live life in your reality and please God. And so he says, and and we can learn a lot from this, and we can apply this very, very uh, truthfully and closely to our employee-employer relationships. He says this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey, basically obey your employer with respect, sincerity, as you would obey Christ. Then he goes on in verse 6, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, not just when the boss is looking, not just to, to, to please the boss, but, but not because of that, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Basically, he says, hey, don't work hard just when the boss is watching. Your, your work ethic, your attitude It should reflect the fact that you are doing this for an audience of one. You are doing this out of reverence for God. You are doing this from a place of intimacy with God. So whether your boss is Santa Claus or whether your boss is like the meanest guy ever, you serve and work for God, not for them. So if they are great to you, you work hard. If they're terrible to you, you work hard because you're doing it for God. You're not doing it to please man. And then he goes on, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And here's basically what Paul's saying. God sees your faithfulness. You got a, you got a bad boss? You're working your tail off and you're getting treated bad? You keep serving out of your love for God and for an audience of one, and God sees your faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. God sees. When, when the boss doesn't know how, what a great worker you are, when he doesn't treat you well, don't worry about it because the God of the universe sees. And he's the person you're serving for. He's the person your life is for. And so just know that he sees and he rewards faithfulness. Whether you're a boss or an employee, he is watching. And then Paul closes by talking to to bosses. He says, masters, do the same to them. Basically, lead as unto the Lord. Use your influence for good. Treat them as you would treat Jesus. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. God judges the CEO and the guy that's the lowest on the totem pole the same way. He's not impressed by your corner office. He's not impressed by your parking spot. He's not impressed by your title. He judges faithfulness faithfully. And so he's not, he's not, you don't get a pass because you're the boss and you don't get a pass because you're the employee and have a bad boss. No, God judges faithfully. He sees all. And here's what what you need to know. And and it's such a good reminder for all of us. God leans into faithfulness. When we're faithful, 
God leans in. And so we want to be faithful. Because here's what I know. Whether you're watching online or you're here this morning, here's what I know. In many ways, the way we feel, what we worry about, and even the direction of our life is determined by the health of our relationships. Probably if, if you had a tough week, if you were worried about something, kind of the direction that your life is going, if you, you could probably point to some relationships that help dictate all those things. And, and no one sets out. I mean, does anybody set out to have a terrible relationship with their parents? It's not like you, when you're a baby, you go home from the hospital like, you know what? I hope we're all in counseling by the end of this thing. I hope this thing just goes terrible. No. No no one sets out to have a train wreck for a marriage. No one sets out to have a dysfunctional work environment. And when we we realize these things are not going well, here's what we do. We we work and we worry and we pull out as many band-aids as we can and we try to put a band-aid on this and we try to put a band-aid on this and try to make this stop and this change. And what usually happens is the band-aids only work for a little while because we never get to the why. We never get to the heart of the issue with the relationships. And so here's my question for you that I want you to think about. What if we just stopped? What if we stopped working on the relationships? What if we stopped worrying about the relationships? What if you, what if, if if your marriage is going down the tubes, what if you just stopped working on your husband or your wife? You've got a dysfunctional relationship at work. Your, your, your relationship with your kid or your mom and dad is, is, is bad and going off the rails. What if you stop worrying about it and what if you just stop putting so much time into fixing it? What might happen? Because here's what, here's what usually, and, and you think, eh, that kind of sounds off and I'll explain. Here's what most of us are doing when we do that. If you're into construction, and I'm not, but I, I know a couple things about it. So I know like the roof is on top of the house. You're like, yeah, in most cases, Chris, you're right. Uh, so you got the roof on top of the house. You got some walls. You got all that other stuff in the middle. And, and uh, a lot of you are smarter than me. But here's, here's what we're doing when we're working on relationships with Band-Aids. We're trying to fill holes in the roof when there's no foundation on the house and the house is about to fall over. But we're steady up on the roof patching the holes when the house is about to tumble over because there's no foundation. And that's what we're doing. My marriage is broke, so uh, let me fix my husband. And and I'm not down in that because that's what I would do too. I want to fix this relationship. I want to control this. I want to control this person and make them do what I think is best for them. And, And it just doesn't work. We're working on the roof and the foundation is about to explode and the whole house is about to fall down while we're putting something together on the roof. What if we just stopped? What if we just stopped? And, and what if we just realized that intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with others? And what if we really caught this idea that the, the best thing you can do for people that you're in a relationship with is grow in your relationship with God? The more you love God, 
the better able you'll be able to love them. If you're engaged, you're dating somebody, the best thing you can do for that other person is not pursue them above all else, it's pursue Jesus. Because the more you love Jesus, the better you're going to be able to love that person unselfishly. See, and for some of us, let's, let's be honest, if, if, we, if we could, we'd go backwards. Because we got a first marriage. And we, we did some things, you know, in our parenting back in the day that, man, if we could go back, we'd change it. But we can't go back. But we can start today by focusing on what's right so that going forward, God could maybe heal some of those relationships and we would have health in our relationships to come. But if we're going to do that, we, we have to change what we focus on. And there's two things as I close. We need to change our, what we're pursuing. We need to change our pursuit. Our pursuit can no longer be that person above all else. It has to be intimacy with God. My pursuit, my greatest pursuit, if I want to be a good husband, if I want to be a good dad, if I want to be a good pastor, an employee, whatever role you play, the way that I'm going to do that best is if I make my pursuit of Jesus my greatest pursuit by far. If I do that, I'll love my wife better. I'll be a better dad. I'll play the roles that I've been given to play and steward much better. But sometimes we have to change our pursuit. And that's hard because we're worried about all these other things. And we want to fix these relationships. We don't like the direction that these people are going in their life. But we have to change our pursuit. But then we have to change our prayers. And here's what I mean. Maybe, and this sounds like, wrong but maybe you stop praying that your husband would love you more and start praying that he would love Jesus more and hopefully you can you can pray two things but but you, you understand what I'm saying like if your husband who you feel doesn't love you and isn't treating you right and isn't being the dad he needs to be or the husband he needs to be man wouldn't him loving Jesus with all his heart changed the game. So what if that was your prayer? What if that was the thing you went to God with, you bombarded the throne of grace with every single day? What if your kid, what if your kid that's, that's a wayward kid or a prodigal son or daughter, what if, what if instead of praying and, and trying to control their life, what if you just begged God that they would love Jesus above all else? How would it change the game? How would it change the game if your son or daughter passionately loved Jesus? What if you bombarded the throne of grace every single day, more than once a day, for that kid to love Jesus? What if you're, maybe you're in a dating relationship, you're looking to get married or something like that, and what if you prayed every single day that that girl or that guy would love Jesus way more than they love you. It would change the game. What if that, that boss that, that is a jerk doesn't treat you well, doesn't treat anybody well, is a terrible leader, and I mean, you could fill in all the blanks. What if you begin to pray for that person that they would know and love Jesus? How would it change the game? 
Can you imagine, as, as we close, can you just imagine, like, just think about your, your picture, your life. Can you imagine how your family, your marriage, your work relationships, how, how they would be different if, if just our gatherings said, you know what, we're going to make our greatest pursuit intimacy with Jesus. And, and here's what would be really cool. And I, I talked to somebody about this in our church uh, a couple weeks ago. He's looking to get married soon. And uh, unfortunately, in his life, he doesn't have a lot of good examples of godly marriages to look at. Actually, he has none in, in his side of his family. And I was able to sit down with him, and, and he was so, like, this is what he wanted. I said, what if you became that for the rest of your family? What if from now on, people in your family could point back to you as the example of what marriage what a godly man or godly lead. What, what, if, what if you stopped this craziness in your family and there was actually a person that, that people could look at as, hey, my uncle or my aunt, that's the one that, that I can look at as somebody that's an example that I can follow, somebody that pursued Jesus, that, that it changed their marriage, their parenting. What if you were that example for your family, even if you don't have any examples to follow yourself? What if it was you? And why can't it be you? Why can't a hundred years from now people point back to you as the change in the generational cycle of brokenness? Why not? Intimacy with God lays the foundation for healthy relationships with other people. And, and my prayer for all of us is whether it's our marriage, our parenting, whether it's our work relationships, that our focus would be intimacy with Jesus. And if you're here or you're watching online and you would say, Chris, at this point in my life, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Well, that's where it starts. It starts by you just telling God, God, you know what? I admit to you that I've sinned. I admit to you that I don't do everything perfect. I've disobeyed you. I admit that to you, God. I believe that, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and raise from the grave for me. I, I believe that. And Jesus, today I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to save me. I want a relationship with you knowing that that relationship with Jesus will change you from the inside out and will give you a home with him in heaven when you die and that's where it starts and so today if, if that's you and you'd say Chris man I'd, I'd I'd love to know more about a relationship with Jesus I want you to on the card the next steps card that's right in front of you or you can use the one digitally if you're watching online or if you just prefer that there's a spot for prayer requests and just write in that prayer request section hey I would like to know more about a relationship with Jesus and one of us will contact you this week, answer any questions you might have, and, and just help you in that pursuit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for Paul. I thank you that in the midst of sitting in prison, in the midst of uh, a time in his life where he could have really just thought about himself and worried about himself and kind of uh, been selfish, while he was sitting in prison, he was thinking about the people of Ephesus. And he, he desperately wanted to see them have a flourishing relationship with you because he knew that would then affect every other relationship. 
And Lord, I pray as we are all broken people, we all have broken relationships in our past. Lord, in many cases, it was our fault. And Lord, we're not proud of those things, but God, we, we come before you as someone who loves us on our best day, loves us on our worst day, and is not afraid of our past or our questions. And Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to make intimacy with you our greatest pursuit. God, I pray as, as we do that, that you would change our parenting, that you would change our marriage relationships, that you would change our work relationships, and Lord, above all, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.